Welcome to the 116th episode of Two Writers Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to mystery writing to music critiquing to self-help to song lyrics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Jesse Doherty, the Nationals beat writer for the Washington Post. And there's a lot to unpack here. At 24, Jesse's a young man on the beat, a young man with questions to ask and tons of stuff to learn. So how do you do it? How does it all unfold? How has Jesse, in a very quick time period, become one hell of a baseball chronicler? The answers are next on Two Writers, Sing and Yang. All right, well, Jesse, first of all, Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. You know, it's funny. Whenever I have a guest on, I try to dig back through the old archives. And you're regrettably too young to dig too deep into the archives because, <laughs> you know, you, you graduated college in 2016. But I found a, found a piece you wrote, your last column at Syracuse. The headline was Hack Publishes Dad's Life Rules. And it was in the Daily Orange, yeah. um, 2016. Freaking great. I would have hired you immediately. I'm not kidding. If I were an editor of a newspaper... And I saw some kid wrote this column. I'd be all over it. I'd be like, this guy. I just read a little of it. You wrote, this is about my dad, Paul Darty. So it could be about a lot of things. It could be about how after Little League baseball games, you tell every player on the field to get a free cone at our family's ice cream shop up the street. Tell them, put it on Paul, he'd say. And a generation of kids grew up calling him Paul the Ice Cream Man. That was so cool. It could be about how before my first middle school dance, he pulled me aside and said, everyone, dressed, everyone deserves to have fun. If no one asks a girl to dance, then you should, he'd say, all the way until my senior prom. That was so caring. It could be about how, right when I started high school, he was diagnosed with tonsil cancer and showed me how to be strong. I'll be okay. Just take care of your mom, he'd say. And after months of radiation treatment and chemotherapy, he was right. That was so brave. Instead, it's about him being the genesis of my young sports writing career, about something he's told me so many times that I roll over my head as words to live and write by. If I could go back and do it all over again, I'd want to be a sports writer, he'd say, his voice carrying a wistful tone of what if, looking back, that would be my dream. And then you list the different life rules of your dad, which are insanely similar to my dad's life rules. Say I love you to your mate at least once a day. Say I love you to your kids more. Read Dr. Seuss now uh, as an adult. Always cut your own lawn. Uh, on and on and on. Be able to laugh at yourself. Be a team player. Just freaking great. I love this column so much. It's probably my favorite thing you've written and you wrote it in college. How does your dad feel? about you covering the Washington Nationals for the Washington Post. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate you reading it, Jeff. I It's funny, if you would have hired me off that column, you would have had to also hire him because he wrote three-fourths of the column. Like that was, you know, uh, he, yeah, he was sort of, <laughs> he was the author of it. Um, yeah, I mean, my dad's uh, super proud of me. Um, we we went, we grew up going to Phillies games every Sunday. I'd say baseball was sort of the root of, of our father-son relationship. And um He's, he thinks it's super cool. I, I, it's, it's cool for me because you sort of get desensitized to going to new stadiums or, you know, being at clubhouse early on a given day when you're, it's a day game and you're tired. But like, I can always call him and tell him that I, you know, talked to whoever or, you know, saw John Crook in the elevator at Citizens Bank Park or all these different things. And it's, it's really exciting to sort of hear how cool he thinks that is. And it reminds me that I should probably feel the same way, even when I'm maybe dragging or on my you know 15th game in a row, or whatever it is. But yeah, it's, it's been pretty cool to share my career with him and, and baseball is definitely at the center of it. Okay. 
Here's a question that fascinates me in 2019. Back when I was coming up in the 90s, a guy with your experience um, starts, you know, you start doing preps and you do preps for maybe two or three years and you're good. And then maybe they throw the local college at you or maybe you're covering mid, mid-level division one. You know, maybe, maybe you're the University of District of Columbia college basketball writer and then you move to Georgetown and then they're like, oh, national beat is open and you're 27 or you're 28 and you take over the beat. And because of where media is now, um, everything moves so much faster and everyone is promoted so much quicker and you get opportunities you didn't get earlier. You took over last year in September as a Nationals beat. Did you know what you were doing? I, I don't know if I do now. I, <laughs> I, I, I hope I do, right? Like, I, yeah. I think, well, it's, it's funny you say that because my, my first thought when you mentioned that is like my entire existence on the Nationals beat feels like I'm trying not to mess up what other great beat writers have done for the paper. Mm. And it's a really short list because, you know, it's only since 2005 in DC, but there's been like a really great baseball writing tradition. And I'm just sort of like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to screw it up now. I mean, the, the kind of have to pass the baton. Uh, and I guess doing that at, you know, I was 24 when this season started now 25, it's, um, it's daunting. I, I, I felt, you know, I have older colleagues that have are much more experienced, uh, older competition that's been around the team and around the sport a lot longer than I have. I guess what I have to lean on in terms of do I know what I'm doing is I hope that I provide a different perspective almost by not knowing what I'm doing, if that makes sense. Uh, and I feel like maybe there's a tendency if you've been in it for a long time to do the same thing every day or the same thing every season. And one thing that maybe helps us on our beats is we sort of have a high turnover rate. I think getting a fresh pair of eyes and a fresh perspective, somebody who's maybe not so close to a subject or team to, uh, to sort of, you know, reinvigorate a coverage or sort of a, a coverage model is maybe one of the benefits of having so many writers come through a, a certain beat or a certain, you know, section. And, uh, that's one way maybe I try and combat that. But in terms of knowing what I'm doing, I, I certainly didn't last September when I first started on the Nats beat. And going through the offseason, trying to get agents and GMs to talk to you for trade stuff and hot stove reporting. I mean, that was pretty, pretty miserable. And uh, it's still definitely a fight every day to figure out if I actually do know what's going on. I was your age when I started sort of doing some baseball stuff for, for Sports Illustrated. Mm-hmm. And I remember almost feeling at the beginning like I was kind of bullshitting my way through. Like, I didn't really know the intricacies of the players. I didn't know any of the agents. The general managers, like, you, you know, they really had no reason to talk to me. Because who the hell is I when you could talk to Verducci? You know, there's no reason to. How do you become comfortable covering a sport that you have not covered before, covering a team you haven't covered before? How did you, how did you sort of go about it? Yeah, I think a, a huge benefit for me was uh, go, going into the season, I, I didn't have a, a partner yet or, or a backup yet. So it was, it was really just me. So for spring training, I, I did the six weeks alone. And while that was exhausting and, and some days really difficult to sort of come up with new topics and, and new ways to look at the team or, or, you know, new ways to write stories. I, it was only me. And I was the only reporter on the beat that was there for the entire six weeks without an off day or break. I put myself in front of guys, lockers, shook hands, said hello, struck up conversation, tried to sort of establish myself as someone they were going to see every single day and, and that they have seen every single day to this, almost this point of the season. And I think that six week period was really crucial. Uh, even if it wasn't, you know, doing full interviews every single day, just being around, just saying hello in the hallway, uh, talking to the, to the coaches and the manager every day and seeing the general manager by the field. I mean, all, all those things were really helpful. And, 
Uh, I, I think, as you mentioned, a sport I haven't covered before, a team I haven't covered before. I was pretty brutally honest about that with guys. I mean, my first, my intro was probably always some form of, if I ask a really stupid question or if I sound like I have no clue what I'm talking about, tell me. Uh, it's, <laughs> I, I want to know. I, and I, and that's happened. It, it happened during spring a, a bunch of times when I would say, X, Y, I would ask a question a certain way and a guy would stop me afterwards. And even if it was off the record, he would say, you know, when you ask that, like, that's such a like misguided you know, way to look at that story or the, a misguided way to look at that certain facet of the game. And I kind of opened myself up to that criticism from the players to, to show them that I wanted to learn and get better and understand their world. And, um, and, and kind of was a fresh slate in that way. I mean, bring my own perspective, but also sort of be taught how, baseball worked from the inside out and th that's how I approached it. I'm not, and again, it's, uh, I think the benefits of it will probably be shown maybe down the line. I'm not really sure if it's come to fruition yet, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping it will. Well, what's an example of something you did not know or something you sort of were, were off on early on in your baseball writing? I think like, so uh, I remember talking to Adam Eaton, who's a nationals right fielder about playing uh, hurt or playing post injury. And I, I'd asked him sort of a string of questions like, you know, me as a normal person would not maybe go 100% if I tore my ACL one season or would uh, would maybe be hesitant to turn around third base if I had twisted my ankle doing that three games prior. And he kind of stopped me afterward and was kind of made the analogy like if if your livelihood and your well-being depended on you doing your job well, do you really think you would, you know, let certain things like that or, or, or their, your past or certain injuries or, or whatnot affect your performance. And he said he kind of felt like I was asking questions in a way that were naive and didn't understand the psyche of athletes in the sense that we're, they're probably going to do whatever it takes to, you know, to hit that, you know, next step and, and not, not let the past or, you know, sort of mental block uh, stop them from doing certain things. And that maybe was particular to him, but it was, it was even, just educational for me to learn that that's how he viewed things. And he's one of the 25 guys I cover every single day. So to have the conversation with him after an interview that was a bit more candid about sort of how, how he, he thinks and works was really helpful. And I think that's like, yeah, there are all, there are all the intricacies of like trying to break news and source building and mistakes I've made in that regard. But I, I think just kind of learning the perspective and how these guys are wired has been, has been really difficult because it, it takes a while and it takes a lot of just time being around, but it's, it's been interesting too. Like, I feel like a lot of my early sports coverage was me bullshitting and pretending I knew stuff I didn't. Like, I'd be embarrassed to ask certain questions because I didn't want to look like a fool either in front of players, in front of a manager, in front of other beat writers. Um, do you have to beat that out of you at all or do you just not have that in you? No, I mean, I think I think I do have it in me. I mean, I think that tendency or <laughs> that sort of inclination to be embarrassed or hesitant is in me. But like going into this season... In the winter, I was going to be the backup to Chelsea James, who's now covering uh, politics on the campaign trail and following around presidential candidates. I think if I were in that role, I would have maybe been able to um, be a bit more hesitant and be a bit more, you know, uh, ease myself in. But when she left the sports section and I got bumped up to sort of be our lead on the nationals coverage, I didn't really have a choice but to put myself out there and uh, ask ask the questions or be the person to sort of be at the forefront of our coverage and ask the difficult questions and the necessary ones and, and be sort of, I, I guess, I don't know. It's funny. You're right. Cause I, I, I think about that all the time. Um, it, will this come out wrong? I hate group interview settings for that reason. And uh, I'd much rather talk to an athlete one-on-one -on -one than 
than with a bunch of cameras around where I'm going to get picked up and put on TV with whatever's up, whatever I'm saying. But, uh, mm-hmm. again, I don't, I don't think I really had much of a choice, but to sort of lean into that. And, uh, I think that's been one of the more educational parts of the season for me is that it's sort of like it was trial by fire and, and just kind of thrown in the deep end. That's a lot of bad metaphors in one, in one line, but no, you know, I, know uh, I know what you mean, but yeah, it's, it, it's, it's been interesting. So you're, as I was at one time, you're of age of the players, right? So yeah. you are a contemporary. You talk to whoever Sean Doolittle or, you know, he's a little older than you, but you know, you talk to these guys and you're a contemporary. I show up and I'm the age of the freaking manager. Does that give you an advantage or do you think they're more likely to be like, eh, fuck this guy. I don't really need to talk to him, but people are generally taught to respect their elders and even have a little fear of their elders. Like the. How does being a contemporary help or hurt? I think it helps with guys that are really around my age, like mid twenties, early twenties, guys who were like a bit younger than me first coming up. Like I, I think I had a really easy time connecting with prospects during spring training, guys who are sort of up in the wide eyed and up in the big leagues for the first time. I kind of could connect with them because I felt the same way that we were sort of going through this first thing together. I, I, I don't feel like I have a lot to connect with, with Max Scherzer or Ryan Zimmerman, guys who are like 34, 35, have kids. Um, you know, sort of are on the back halves of their career. I find that I notice guys their age or even a bit older, early forties writers have an easier time connecting with them. One, because they've maybe been around them for longer. At this point, I'm sort of like the random guy who just popped up this season as, as the new fill in or, you know, and I think I'm establishing myself as someone who's around all the time, but I'm still someone new and I'm a new face. So I'd say it does help with people right in my age range, but it's, I think it's sort of a fine line where right when you get over like 30 and sort of into your mid thirties, then I don't feel like I have as much to connect on with guys. Whereas, you know, the younger 20 some year olds, I, I do feel like that's an advantage. I remember um, one of my favorite stories I've probably told on this podcast before is when Buster only was covering the Yankees for the New York times. He, um, you know, he was on like his whatever third year covering the team for the times. And he broke his thumb, I think, or broke a finger and he had a cast on his hand. And he said, He's in this clubhouse every day, day after day after day. And one guy asked him what happened to his hand. And I always think like, do they care about you? Like, do they give a shit about you? Like, like we work so hard to establish our presence and Hey, it's Jesse. It's Jesse. And they know your face. If someone showed up tomorrow, if Bob showed up tomorrow, would they care? Yeah, probably not. And it's, it's <laughs> such, it's such a, it, it's like interesting though. Cause it's so opposite, right? Like my job is to know every small detail about their lives yeah. and they, don't know anything about me. Um, it's it's like the total opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of that relationship. And I, I think some guys like talking. I think some guys will come over and chat and you have the common ground of, you know, baseball in this case, or, you know, Sean Doolittle's a, the closer for the nationals. And we, we read a lot of the same books. So we talk about them and that's, that's interesting. But uh, the only time anyone's ever, any player in the clubhouse has mentioned anything to me was I have a pair of pink shoes that I've worn twice and I wore them the first time and got all kinds of crap and during spring training. And I wore them again, like the other day and like three guys were like, there are those shoes again. And it was like, well, maybe I should wear these more often because then I'm not like a ghost to everyone. And uh, that, that's the only time I don't know if a broken finger or arm would have done it, but for some reason, these fluorescent pink shoes were, uh, were the talk of the clubhouse for a few days. And that, that, that got my, that got my name out there. I felt like, right. You spend six weeks in spring training. And how many games will you cover this year? Uh, playoffs not included, if they make it. We'll probably cover 145, 140 to 145. All right. How the hell do you do that? Like, how do you not? It's game number 87 
in Cincinnati, and it's seven to three Nationals in the eighth inning. Um, how are you not falling asleep? I find it interesting because I need to find something interesting every day. So I, I like if I were just watching as a fan, like it'd be. I think it'd be really tough to go to 140 baseball games as a fan because that would feel like the same thing every single night. But I genuinely feel like I need to fill 24 inches of newspaper space with an interesting story. So like, it doesn't really feel similar to me. Like I haven't felt like one game or the next has felt similar. And I don't, and I, and that probably sounds cliche. Like they're, cause they, cause they do bleed into one another. And it's the baseball season definitely is kind of one long drone, especially in the middle, like June, July was kind of slow, but um, just sort of like that rush of, hits the fourth inning every night and my computer screens may be blank. And like, I have to kind of think like, what the hell am I going to write tonight? And like in my head, it can't be bad. Like, even if, even if the game is 10 to one and there's like nothing going on, it's just like lifeless. Like the game, the game story, like can't be bad. It goes on the front of the sports section in the Washington post. There's going to be four writers on there. Otherwise that are excellent every day. And they're going to be writing like really good shit. And I need to live up to that. And I feel like just sort of like chasing that standard all the time has gotten me through it. And it makes every day feel fresh and new and exciting in some ways because of that. Are there days when like, yeah, I'm bummed I have to go to the park? Um, for sure. It's, there's not like, I can't lie and say like, it's every day is like, let's go. You know, it's really exciting. But I, I, I got advice from Helene Elliott, who's a columnist at the LA Times. She always said to me when I was an intern there, the only have, you only have to write better than they play. So if it's an amazing game, you have to write that much better. If it's a really bad game, you have to write a story that's still more interesting than the really bad game. Uh, and that, that stuck with me. I think that really applies to the baseball beat. You're at a game. What are you doing? Like, I know you're watching, but you have your screen up. Are you on social media? Are you keeping score? Like, what are you doing? Yeah, I keep score by hand. I, I just like it. It sort of like keeps me in the flow of it kind of forces me to pay attention to every at bat and every pitch. I, I usually have Twitter up. I, I really like, um, it's kind of like new age and nerdy, but like baseball savants and analytics website now, and they have a lot of like live, like exit velocities and launch angle. And they break down the pitches by, you know, the pitchers by, by every single pitch he's thrown and the average velocity of each pitch. And I usually have that open in one window. And I like to just check in during the game to see if there's anything new and interesting I could find out. Like if, Steven Strasburg throwing his curveball at a higher rate than he ever does. Then I'm going to probably ask about that post game or if, you know, Trey Turner hit a double, but it was the hardest hit ball he's hit this season. I, I kind of want to get at those sort of things. And I think that's like, we have all these tools available to us, all these different resources and, and ways to sort of look at the game differently that I, I think it would be kind of silly not to use them and to write things in a very straight way. That said, I, I am kind of writing for a general baseball audience. I'm not writing for like the saber saber metrics head. I'm not writing for sort of like the diehard guy who wants all that launch angle stuff fed to them. But I do think that mixing those in and, and sort of using those numbers and statistics anecdotally um, can sort of give the coverage a different feel. And so I'm following that. I'm tweeting as things come up, probably tweeting too much. And then I'm writing. I I'm writing 800 words by the end of the game. And then around 800, 900, um, afterwards. So sort of about an hour and a half after, after the game ends. So it's kind of a, a bunch of different things at once, but the main thing is that I'm writing. That's, that's sort of the ultimate goal. And when you, all right, so you, the game ends, I mean, I've done this drill many times. You go down to the clubhouse besides whatever, the guy who hits a game winning home run or whatever, do you have go-to guys who you feel like, okay, I need to get extra max. This is the guy I'm going to go to. Are there certain four or five guys you feel like I know I can get a money quote from these people? Yeah, I feel like I post game 
I, I, that doesn't happen as much. Like I would probably use that bullet per se to, with that guy pregame during our access. Like we get an hour and a half in there or an hour or so pregame for most games. And like, if I wanted something from someone or wanted to get sort of like a more of a raw, uh, one-on-one situation, I would probably use that before a game just because it's easier. Post game's really hectic. People are trying to go home. Everyone's getting dressed. The, the reporters kind of moving a pack together and get sort of the key players from the game. That said, like if, you know, a guy like Sean Doolittle or Adam Eaton or you know, a guy you have a better relationship with has a big game, something I'll, I'll do often and I see other writers on the beat do is sort of hang behind. So if a guy does that, you know, prototypical scrum where he talks to the 10 people and the cameras, you sort of linger afterwards and you ask a few, you know, questions that maybe you didn't want everyone to hear and everyone to get the, the quotes from. And so I'd say that's like the general post game move. If you want something a little bit more, you know, in depth or something that you kind of want to be exclusive to you, it's sort of to hang behind because generally people want to talk to the same people post game because we all watch the same thing. And I think in like the postseason or for bigger games, maybe there's a bunch of different angles and things going on, but in a given, you know, June 10th game, if someone hits a home run and the pitcher throws six scoreless and there was a great play by the shortstop, like those are the three people who are talking to everyone. Uh, but it, but it is helpful to have the relationship with somebody to say, Hey, do you have a second after you just address the entire media? Can we talk a bit after and, uh, and, and get, and get a bit more into this? And that's something I'll do pretty often. You had a, you had a story a couple of days ago. Joe Ross extends bid to stay in Nationals rotation with another stellar start. And, um, Joe Ross, a man I've never heard of, but he pitched well. And you kind of had your lead and then your quote, you had a quote from him. It was, I'm just taking it day by day and staying confident, not getting down in a rut, which combines like every possible cliche ever in a baseball quote yeah. and a quote I've probably used myself a million times. Is it, yeah. do you need a quote? Do you, are you just like, I need to put a quote in here. It sucks. It's not a good quote, but what choice do I have? I, yeah, I do feel that way. And that's probably bad, right? Like, I don't I, know. I actually don't know the answer. I've used it. I've done it too. A lot of the quotes are not good. Um, I think oftentimes I like to use interviews to like get color and, and you know, how are you, what would you see on that play? But like actually as like a full thought, whereas like, I'm sure if we chop this interview, like, this conversation up that we're having, like I probably wouldn't have many great, like, you know, bite-sized quotes for, for a story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like, it's, it's hard to do. It's hard to like keep a thought going in one direction. I, I, I kind of laugh all the time, like how often guys just sort of like pause dot, 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 ellipses, and then like go in a totally different tangent. And you're like, well, that, that was going to be a good quote. Like you were, you right. were so close and, and now we're going somewhere else and you almost want to steer them back. Uh, one thing baseball players do that really kind of drives me nuts is that they always like rope in everyone. So like you ask a guy, like you hit three home runs and you're the hero and what'd you see out there? And you're like, well, I got the first pitch and then just everyone on the bench was so excited. And I just think the team played really well today. And you're like, no, I'm asking about you. Like it, there always is this inclination to rope in the group and it kind of ruins a lot of quotes. And I've, I've found that. And Tom Boswell, who's a legendary columnist that I work with and have like, I'm like, I pinch myself whenever I get to sit in the press box with him. He always says like, quote, shouldn't be more than like 10 to 15 words. And if you're quoting big block quotes in the story of like 30 to 40 words, you're probably doing it wrong. And I've, I've thought about that, that this year, that if the quotes aren't fruitful, they, they certainly shouldn't be long. So uh, maybe that Joe Ross quote could have been cut down a little bit. I actually have a theory and, uh, I'm going to run it by you. I feel like you are, you have a tougher, you are in a tougher period to cover athletes than I was, whatever, a decade and a half, two decades ago because of this. These guys, like the Joe Rosses of the world, were raised to be baseball players. They were single sports. You played year round. In the summer, you weren't going to sleepaway camp. You were going to baseball camp. You had a private instructor. You had a private tutor. And I just feel like a lot of these guys, 
only know baseball. They were raised to be baseball players. And you just don't have the diversity of thought and experience that maybe a Brett Favre or a Walter Payton or, you know, a De- even a Derek Jeter. Like, I just don't think you have that with modern players because they're baseball players because they're made to be baseball players. Am I, is that dumb? No, I, I think that makes sense. I also think that social media has become this, this checking power that like everyone's afraid of becoming the guy whose quote is circulating around social media that night, good or bad. Like, I feel like no one wants the attention that Twitter has sort of afforded every little detail of everything. And in baseball, it's not as acute as, you know, football or basketball where you could sneeze and it turns into a headline. But mm-hmm. I do, I do feel like that, like, so for example, like I read your, I read your book on Barry Bonds this summer and Thanks. like the things that, yeah, it was awesome. And, and the things that happened in that book, like the, even like the things Barry would do, like yelling at reporters or stuff, like you would never see that now because like the first thing that's going to happen is that somebody's going to walk out into the hallway and, you know, type out a tweet and say like, you know, blank just motherfucked some reporter in the locker room and then it's going to blow up and mm-hmm. that guy's suspended. And, and that's, I mean, and like in that example, that's probably a good thing. Like the fact that there is a checking power for, you know, bad behavior and inappropriate behavior is good. But I do think it has sort of made everyone, PR staffs, players, managers on down, very hyper aware of every little action they do and every word they say. And there isn't like, it's harder to get like the salacious detail or the sort of money quote per se because because of that. And I, I I do think there there is an element of it that you're right. Like athletes are just generally programmed as athletes, and that sort of takes some of the fun out of it too. Because not only are they programmed on the field, they're programmed as you know as like public faces and in the media. And like when you become a superstar at 16, you're sort of by the time you're 25 in the major leagues, you've done a million interviews, and you're probably not a you one, you probably don't enjoy them anymore. And two, you're, you're a pro. You're not going to slip up. You're not going to say much. You're going to say whatever you want to say and sort of stick to a message. But I also think like sort of the viral component of media has, has made it sort of odd to cover something day to day because no one wants to be viral. That's, that would be, that would be bad in every sense of the word. Uh, if you ask these athletes. So I think that that definitely plays into it. When I was covering baseball, every clubhouse had at least one asshole. Like you knew. Giants, okay, Barry Bonds, asshole. You go to the Cleveland Indians, Albert Bell, Kenny Lofton, those two guys are going to be assholes. Like every team, right. you go to Detroit, Bobby Higginson, stay away from Bobby Higginson, he's going to be an asshole. Um, it was almost like it came with the turf. And part of the sport was tiptoeing up to the asshole if you had a good game and getting snarled out. And, and it, is that just, are there no assholes anymore? Are they all just, is everyone just in the middle? I mean, there are certainly guys who don't like talking to the media. Um, but I would say they do it in a, bit more of a diplomatic way, just, just like reading and knowing some of the stories for, for like some of the guys you just mentioned, I, I don't find that to be, you know, ubiquitous anymore. I don't think that's happening so often, but um, that does not mean that everyone's sitting at their locker with a, you know, a piece of paper saying, please, please ask me about myself. I mean, that's not happening either. So <laughs> I, I think there's some middle ground. Well, I was going to say like um, another thing that's changed from when I covered that. So, so many new stadiums have been built through the years. I mean, a perfect example is, is Shea Stadium to City Field. Shea Stadium, there was nowhere for the athletes to go. So when you walked in for that hour and a half before the game, they were all sitting at their locker and maybe they'd give a sigh yeah. or maybe they'd try to go to the bathroom, but they were there for you. And it seems like, like that hour and a half hour before the game kind of fascinates me because nowadays the stadiums are so huge. They give them, you know, there's a dining room for the players. There's different areas to hide. Like how much of your time is spent standing around and how do you get a player if you need a player in that time period? It's, it's a lot of standing around. I try and minimize that as much as I can, but 
sometimes it's it's hard. I mean, it's there are times when the clubhouse is literally empty and the the sort of reporter to athlete ratio is like seven to zero, and it's like, well, who, 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 should we interview each other? I mean, that's that happens, and I mean, road games are way easier because, as you mentioned, like there aren't the same accommodations at home. There are more accommodations now with newer parks, but there isn't the player lounge, the family lounge. Uh, guys aren't coming from home or they're dropping their kids off at school and then coming to the game. So the road is where I try and do a lot of my interviews. And what I've, what I've sort of found and sort of advice I got going into it was trying to sort of always plan ahead. Like I don't, I hardly ever meet a guy on the day I'm writing a story about him. Like I, I'm not going to sort of wait. Like I, I'm there way too much to procrastinate to the point where I'm like begging for a guy to talk to me for the sake of having quotes in a story that is running like later that day or that next morning in the newspaper, I will always plan two or three days ahead and say, Hey, uh, I'll use Max Scherzer. We're going to Detroit next week. Do you have time any day in that series? It could be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I'm around. I will be here. Uh, when do you want to talk? And, and guys usually respond pretty well to that. They're that's sort of easier than just spur of the moment saying, Hey, are you free right now? That said, I do do that too. I mean, if it's something a little quicker where I need a, a couple questions, two, three minutes, I'll, I'll, I'll go up to a guy and say, do you have your time right now? And I mean, I mean, the worst part, Jeff, I, I know I've heard you talk about this is like the sort of like yo-yoing of like, is he ready? Is he dressed? Sort of like oh. stepping forward, stepping back. It's like the weirdest dance of walking up to someone at their locker. Their backs usually turn. They're usually on their cell phone. They might have headphones in and sort of like in, sort of approaching slowly, but not you know, not too slow because they'll leave, but not too fast that you're like rushing. It's it's so bizarre. It's a really weird world. They're the cool kids at school, and you're kind of not. And they run right. the they run the lunchroom, and you don't. Right. And you're it's like there's nowhere else to sit in the lunchroom, so you need to sit at the cool kids table today. And you tiptoe up, and eh, is this okay? Hey, is it? Do you mind? And like right. in a real world, you should just be able to walk up to some guy just because he throws a 95 mile per hour fastball and ask him a question and not feel lesser but it just comes with the turf it's the weirdest thing isn't it yeah it's the dynamics are totally bizarre and i think that like the the funny thing is i, I always think like you wait sometimes you wait like days and days to like talk to a guy and you're like man i need this guy for the story or i need his perspective on another teammate and then like it's like you wait forever and, and he's like well let me let me hit or let me eat or let me go do this or i gotta i gotta go do an autograph a session and he keeps putting it off and you're like man i just could use him and then it's like two minutes and then he's like, and then the response is always like, that's it. And you're like, yeah, that's it. Like we could have just done this the first day and we could have, we could have not done this six day standoff where we were sort of, should we talk? Should we talk now? But I mean, it's, it's, it is what it is. I guess it's 162 game season. If it gets you through, uh, sometimes that sort of cat and mouse game is, is the most interesting part of the day. So I remember Delino DeShield when he was with Baltimore, they were on a three day road trip in Texas. And he blew me off for three days. And if you've covered baseball long enough, you know there's not that much to do. Like, you know these guys right. aren't solving world peace or reading Tolstoy. Like, they are actually sitting around a solid 70% of the time. So if they're blowing you off, they're just blowing you off. Like, there's no there's right. no great busy thing they're doing in Arlington, Texas for three days. And, and the weird thing is, it's always like, you know I want to talk to you. And <laughs> you're going to walk right by me. Or we're going to like lock eyes across the room and then you're going to go hit. But it's like, I've asked twice now and I don't want to ask a third time. It's like, it's like almost being like a, in a relationship. Like, should I text again? Um, it's so, <laughs> yeah, right. it's so now that I'm talking about it out loud, I'm like, wow, that's, that's what I do every day. It's really bizarre. 
the thing that drives me crazy the most is I always tell my kids, make other people's lives easier. Like, don't make someone else's life harder. That means put your tray away after you eat. That means right. uh, before you check out of a hotel room, make sure the room is in decent shape, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you, baseball player, could make my Jesse's life so much easier by just giving me the five minutes right before you go to the toilet. And that's it. And you'll make my life happy. That's all you have to do. I think you should give right. a speech before spring training to the entire team and just tell them they can make the media's life easier. Maybe you should come and give the speech. <laughs> I'll be hired by Major League Baseball. <laughs> As media, media, uh, media, the player liaison. Before we continue with two writers slinging yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who wears the same tie-dye t-shirt every single day. Seriously, it's time to change. But I love this shirt. What about the five other shirts you own? All boring. What about the one that says, I eat roadkill? Very 2018. What about the one that says, Trump Pence 2020? I'd rather eat poisonous mushrooms. What about the Sam Darnold Jet shirt? I don't know who that is. Honestly, Dad, what I'd really like is an Orlando Thunder t-shirt. Or maybe a Seattle Steelhead jersey. But that's never going to happen. What? All you have to do is go to 503-sports.com. Home of the best collection of throwback sports merchandise on the planet. It's handmade. It's specially crafted. It's all your clothing dreams come true. Okay, but I really like my shirt. It's growing fungi. I have a piece in front of you, December 5th, 2018. You wrote this really great story. Uh, the headline was, Bryce Harper arrived as a massive promise. If he leaves the Nationals, what will his legacy be? It was a really smart breakdown um, of kind of Harper at, at when wasn't sure if he was going to come back or not. Uh, your lead was, um, he looked like any teenager trying to fit in at a wedding or a dinner party or... If his uh, life were any bit normal, a high school prom, a black tuxedo vest buttoned over his black button-down shirt, his rolled-up sleeves revealing wristbands, his dull red tie not quite matching the colors he was about to slip on, if not forever, then for at least the next eight years. Because that's exactly what Bryce Harper was back in August 2010, in the twilight of another losing season when the Washington Nationals introduced him as their number one pick. And you wrote this really good breakdown of Bryce Harper and sort of looking at what happens as he stayed, as he leave. How is your life different? If Bryce Harper is re-signed with the Washington Nationals, how does it how does it change a beat having a superstar, a mega superstar on the beat? I really was only around Bryce for about a month and a half last season, um, August to September. I think in some ways, like in, in a baseball clubhouse, having a guy like Bryce, I, I haven't covered the NFL, but just having colleagues that do, it's kind of like having a quarterback. Like he's he was always the story. That's something I've heard Barry Sreluga, um, one of our great columnists, say all the time. Bryce was always the story. Uh, from the day he, from that day he was signed, wearing that sort of weird suit, whatever he had on, from the day he left, he was in. When it came to the Nationals, Bryce Harper was it. And there's been players over the years, you know, Max Scherzer, Anthony Rendon, Ryan Zimmerman, who have who have gotten some of the spotlight, and for good reason. But you always could fall back on Bryce. There was always interest. There was always something going on. There was always an angle with him. And I don't, I don't really feel like I have that, for better or worse. I mean, I think. There's something sort of frustrating about that covering as someone who you need to sort of always be attentive to and always have an idea with and have, have a relationship with because it sort of, your job sort of depends on writing about them every so often. Um, so, so that doesn't really exist within the Nats clubhouse right now. There's, there's a few touch points that do like Anthony Rendon sort of that way with his contract and Max Scherzer's one of the best pitchers on the planet and has been dealing with an injury, you know, for, for a month and a half now where, where he sort of is, has that level, but there isn't that Bryce presence where you have to write Bryce every single day. And I think that that's what changes. It changes it immeasurably um, when, when that goes on. 
So Juan Soto, obviously really good player. How do you cover a 20 year old kid who's brand new to sort of, you know, this world who, uh, naive, wide eyed, blah, 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 blah. Is he a joy to cover or is it a challenge to cover? Juan's probably my favorite player to cover. Um, the cool thing with him is he learned English at 16. He, uh, he did a, he really he just ripped through a year of Rosetta Stone classes. He, he's, he's fluent now, uh, if not near fluent and, he does have a translator with him a lot of the time, but he will sort of not use them. He'll use them to get a question and then he'll answer in English. It's, it's really interesting and it's really cool to see how he's matured in the year I've been around him. And he's really fun. He's, uh, he's extremely talented. He's, I sort of feel that way. I was talking about Bryce. I feel that way with Juan a bit. Like it's not like there's a demand for a story every single day as, as there was with Harper, but I feel like. Soto is always generating new ways to write about him just because he's such a great baseball player. I think when you have those superlative skills and you can play the game in so many different ways, like it's just kind of like a, it, this is sounds corny, but it's like a really, like it's like a blank canvas for a writer. Like there's, it's kind of like an endless opportunity for ways to write about Juan Soto, different stories, different profile ideas, different feature ideas. Um, and, and he's generally really agreeable to talk. He's, he's around a lot. I, yeah. I can't say enough good stuff about covering Juan Soto and I probably don't give enough credit to the fact that he's experiencing this all for the first time. I think he, last year he was a rookie and everyone was really surprised and shocked at how great he was. And now he's a 20 year old and it's like, well, okay, it's just Juan Soto, but like 20 is still really freaking young. Like just cause he's not 19 doesn't mean it's not sort of the, still the same story of, of how, how, how fast his ascension is going. So it's going to be something really fun to just keep watching and covering because he's, uh, He's, 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 he's fun. He's fun and interesting. And uh, he always, he always has something cool today for sure. Do you get why people nowadays, you know, whenever you read about baseball in this sort of grand scale, it's the game is boring. People don't care. It's all about home runs and strikeouts. My kid doesn't really give a shit. Most of his friends, I don't think give a shit. Even kids who play literally, I don't think really care that much about major league baseball. Um, you being around it on a daily basis, do you get it? Or are you more of the, you guys don't understand. This is really great. You're just missing out. No, I do get it. And I, I wasn't really following baseball that closely before I got this beat. And I really like it now, but I like it because not, not because I have to, but because I'm, I'm sort of digging into it. And if I was just a casual sports viewer, I don't know if I would be tuning in every night or, or going to buy tickets to every single game. One, it's really, really expensive. And I think they've totally priced out a lot of different demographics of people and made it really hard to come to the park, especially if you're bringing kids. Um, you know, teams like the Nationals and Orioles have done small things to try and curb that. But I think that baseball has to kind of look itself in the mirror and decide how it's going to attract a more diverse fan base, how it's going to get a younger generation. Because right now, a lot of people that love it, it's rooted in nostalgia. I mean, it's, it's the game you grew up watching or listening to on the radio and, but those generations are maybe fading out a bit and to grip the younger fan base. I mean, it's going to need great players and it has that it has a really great young generation of players right now. And I think it's a really prime opportunity to sort of figure out the best way to capitalize on them. But I certainly understand why, you know, your kid or um, sort of this upcoming generation aren't gripped by baseball. It's long. Um, a lot of the rules are archaic. I think it's again, like it's hard for parents to bring kids to the park just because like parking alone is going to be $40. Like in what world should you have to go park? you know, for $40 and then spend 60 bucks on a ticket and then spend 20 bucks on a beer. It's just, it's insane. And uh, I, I think there has to be a lot of uh, introspection moving forward uh, from the sport because they, they could totally lose an entire generation. And that's, that's, that's pretty bad. That's bad territory to be in. I took my son to uh angels pirates out here the other day, two days ago. And, um, it's a barn burner. Hub, you could, 
Yeah, it was a, you know, it's a pretty heated game there. And, um, I'd say there were 20 people in the crowd. This isn't very important, but I went to get, uh, to buy something to drink. They sell a uh, soda, the, the mini bottles of soda. And the guy before me online goes, picks up a soda. The cashier goes, that'll be $6. And the guy's face, I can't even explain it. It was, it was almost like the angel lost him at that very moment. The idea that you're charging me $6 for a tiny bottle of soda. And I, it, it just struck me like, the Angels Stadium is terrible. The food choices are terrible. Parking is expensive. Food is expensive. The team is mediocre. They're playing the Pirates. Baseball has to give people a reason to go. And I right. just don't know if they're giving people enough of a reason, especially compared to the flash of the NBA, the flash of even the NHL, the flash of the NFL. Yeah, but, but Jeff, like that combination, bad team, bad food, expensive parking, I won't say bad stadium, but those three things, it's like, that's way more common in the league than good food, good team, you know, whatever. Like, yeah, it's, it, there's also like a competitive balance thing. It's like a whole different conversation of like teams not spending enough and a lot of teams not trying to win. And, and like, that's, you know, that's, that has to be worked out by a bunch of people in, in, you know, much higher positions than we are. But like, there's like, there's a, there's a competition problem. And like the, in terms of like the product on the field is not good enough in most cities to even warrant coming let alone the other peripheral things like cost of attending and the food and, and the, and the mini soda bottles. But like the sole fact that the teams are bad in most cities, like, yeah, why, why come out? Why spend three hours plus, plus your commute, you know, coming out to a game? It's, it's, it's not, it's not something I would probably do in my free time. I can tell you that. Um, I want to ask you one more thing. So you, uh, I asked you for uh, some stories that you felt good about and you sent me three May 2nd, 2018, you co-bylined it piece called if Cairo goes down, I'll go down with it. A public housing crisis threatens the future of Illinois' southernmost town. Its people and basketball are hanging on. Your your lead was, there are not as many pickup basketball games these days. Not as many kids dribbling in the street after school. Not anymore, at least. Not since the town's two biggest public housing complexes closed a year ago. Except some afternoons still have a slow pulse, like this on a Thursday in early April, with a handful of kids skipping around a skinny block on Cairo's northern end. In an hour or so, they would all be called in for dinner and leave skateboards and scooters and bicycles scattered on the sidewalk. The street would then fall quiet again, like the ones next to it and the ones across town and the ones weaving through the Elmwood and McBride housing complexes where about 400 people used to live and now only a few dozen families remain. But first, there was an important game of one-on-one basketball to play as two little boys bounded toward the baskets on each side of the block, focusing hard to keep the ball from striking the uneven pavement and bouncing out of reach. Um... It's a freaking beautiful, beautiful story. Heartbreaking and beautiful. Thank you. For sure. Why are you doing a story based out of Cairo, Illinois? Like, how did this even come to exist? It, that's a really good question. You did note that um, there's a Kobawin on it. Um, Boswell I did. Hudson is the name of the, of the writer that I worked on. I, I, I did write the story. Um, Bos, Boswell kind of provided some reporting and background and, and was sort of a local guide on the ground. He came to our sports section with an idea to, to follow this. To, he had followed the basketball team through their season. He had watched, uh, Demarius Pepe Taylor, who's kind of the main character in the story, develop into a college prospect. And, and at the same time, he watched this town essentially deteriorate and be sort of the, at the epicenter of a, a, a national debate on public housing and, you know, stuff that was debated on the house floor and, you know, that Ben Carson was pressed with in, 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 in hearings. And, um, Caro had a, had a lot of sort of eyeballs on it. You know, the Wall Street Journal did a big story and, uh, Vice went there for, for a video shoot and there were, there was a lot of different, different elements of it. Uh, when, when we got that sort of pitch from the freelancer, I had an editor at the time who came to me and he said, look, this, this Boswell doesn't have a ton of writing experience, uh, but he does have this good idea. 
would you be interested in going to Cairo um, for you know five six days and seeing what's up and seeing if there's a story there and if we and if we have something to write and I was like the second you told me that I was like looking at flights to book like how do, what what's the closest town to Cairo how do I get there I was so jazzed um, I, re- I really love sort of parachuting into random places uh, you know I think one of the other stories I sent you was from Fraser Montana which is in a, the Fort Peck Indian Reservation way up near the Canadian border I just I find it really interesting to sort of just write about place and people in places that we don't really know about or think about. And in, in, in this case, Carol was had a really rich history and had a really um, devastating thing going on at the same time. And there was a way to sort of make it a sports story and write about their basketball team and this, and this one basketball player. And yeah, sort of a roundabout way of how a story comes about. A lot of the times I'm pitching or almost all the time I'm pitching my stories, but in this case, uh, sh- shout out to Boswell who put it on our radar and uh, I went there with him and a photographer and we, we spent five days there and it was, it was really interesting, really, really difficult to seeing sort of the state the town was in, but that's sort of, that's how it shook out. Is it easy to show up and have people open up to you? I mean, you're used to doing it in a clubhouse now. Is it easy when you're just talking to sort of Joe Smith who lives in the town to get people to trust you and to open? No, it's impossible. I mean, I guess it's not impossible because I, we, we do it, but it, it feels like it's impossible when you first try. And, you know, this, this town was kind of bruised by the media and really, really hardened by it because I think everyone who came just sort of stuck their camera out the window and just drove through the t- center of town and sort of all these bro- broken down houses and closed stores and empty shopping centers and, you know, grocery stores that were gutted out and, and just, you know, you throw them up on the five o'clock news and they, you kind of forget the real people live there. And there are real people sort of going through this problem that are not necessarily in those broken down homes, but are still in a home that's still standing. But, you know, they need help. They need public housing relief. They need federal relief to, you know, help them sort of dig out of this rut. And when you first get there the first day, I mean, I, you know, I never like Demarius Taylor is the main st- subject of that story. I went on a recruiting visit with him during that time. I went to school with him. I went, you know, we, we hung out till from Monday through Friday. I, I didn't get to go to his house. His mom wouldn't let us in, but, um, I don't think he really even knew my name by the end. And, right. you know, we had a few interviews and I thought I kind of got him to talk and open up about a few things, but like I was always just this reporter parachuting into him. And, and that, that to me, that one felt weird because I didn't have the time, like someone like Mexers or in the nationals dug out to you know, spend six months with them and then, you know, land the big story and get to talk. I mean, I had four days to sort of force this relationship with a 17 year old and then get them to open up to me on the last day and then go home and write this story that ends up on the front page. And sort of, he's, he's being talked about, hopefully, you know, in a lot of different circles and we never really even knew each other. And um, yeah, I guess that's a long winded way of saying it's, it is really difficult. And I, I struggle with sort of even just being in that role of someone that's sort of parachuting in with a notebook and saying, you know, tell me your life story. Whereas like they can kind of just look at you and say, who the hell are you? Get out of our town. I used to have a thing where if someone got my name wrong, I'd correct them. Like I call for an interview. Hey, this is Jeff from and Oh, Hey John. I'm like, no, it's Jeff. Oh, sorry, Jeff. Now I realize it doesn't matter. <laughs> like I, I'm like, yeah, John is fine, whatever. And people talk to you because of what you represent, not who you are. I mean, certainly right. your approach is important and you get people to open up. That's important. But you're the guy from the Washington Post. And that's, that's totally fine. Like it doesn't really matter if they know your name or if he even knows who you are. If he would recognize you walking down the street now in his hometown, like it's just get the guy to open up and do your job. And I guess that's kind of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's interesting. In other words, we're all very replaceable. <laughs> right. Like you just, just sub the next guy in. It's like carbon copies. Yeah. That, yeah right. That's what the you're next saying. Man up. This is an example. I remember when Rick Riley left Sports Illustrated for ESPN and it was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? 
He left. And then the magazine went on, you know, and Gary Smith left and the magazine went on. Like we're all, none of us, I, I hate when I see journalists with the egos because we're all replaceable and there's always someone else who can write better than you. So don't get too cocky. As your dad no, would I say, totally I'm guessing. No, he, he certainly would. Well, Jesse, I appreciate your time so much. Seriously, you're a bright light on the baseball beat. And uh, I, I, I do greatly enjoy your work. So it's, it's cool to see. Thanks so much, Chef. Yeah, I, I listened to all these. So this was a uh, checking one off the box for me. It was pretty cool to come on. I want to thank today's guest, Jesse Doherty, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Jesse on Twitter at Doherty underscore Jesse and read his work in the Washington Post. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Riders Slinging Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the Dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. <laughs>